Well, if you would, why don't you have a seat? Thank you, Ben, worship Ben, for leading us so well. Man, it is a... Uh, entering that season of Thanksgiving... For some of you, that means family, and for some of you, that is an awesome. For some of you, that is a dread. We all know on the spectrum, don't we? You know, I'm reminded of um, a, a great truth, and that is that uh, gratitude often leads us to humility. And paradoxically, the more humble we are, the more grateful we are. And so it, one of the things that we can do with gratitude is it is a muscle that can be practiced. And so we wanted to just encourage you to practice. So what you'll find as you leave in the foyer, at, uh, around the tables and towards the front door, you'll find uh, just a bowls of these thank you cards with an envelope. We just encourage you to grab a handful of them and take some time to be, think who, who you're grateful for, how you would like to communicate that, and just write a note of thanksgiving. You'll be surprised at what it does for you but you also may be surprised what it does for others. Amen? Amen. So those are out there for you. Well, I don't usually do this, but I just wanted to share with you a little bit of uh, my struggle for this sermon. Uh, Pastor Lawrence has asked me to, to teach on the true treasure of the church, and I, uh, I just like wrestling with a bear, I felt like. Your notes uh, on the Destiny app have an outline there. I will try to stay close to that as possible, though I've kind of tweaked a little bit what I want to say. I wanted to just take an opportunity to really talk about the church. I, my temptation was to try to take this and draw it constantly into the practical level for the individual, but I realized that my call was to talk about the church. So uh, I began to write out all the things I wanted to say about the true treasure of the church, and after about the 25th page, I realized this is not a sermon. <laughs> you are all going to suffer if I try to get through this, uh, so we had to go back a little bit. If you have your Bibles, why don't you take them and turn them to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 6 and 7 and then dive in here. Second Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's pray once more. Jesus, we've read your word. Now I ask you the next few moments, you would protect this time from the opinions of men. We long for a word from you. Would you come and speak to us? We take a moment to realize this not the only thing happening here on campus. And we just say, would you bless those working with our children? Would you give our children a heart to know you, to walk in your ways? Lord, may they see your beauty and desire to gaze upon it all the days of their life. May you anoint those serving our children this morning. And Father, I pray in here, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And I'm going to need your help this morning. I thank you for this in advance, in Jesus' name. Amen. A young Jewish man stands in line trying to conceal the small black and white photo in the palm of his hand as he's ordered to board a boxcar of a train. When one of the Nazi soldiers recognizes that he's hiding something and comes to him and, and tells him to let it go, and the man refuses to, so they begin to beat him. And he still refuses to let go of the photo until they take the butt of their guns and begin to beat him even more until the man is killed. And the question is, was the man's life really worth the black and white photo? 
But to ask the question that way is to miss the point. You see, we're all designed to treasure things. In fact, to treasure something is a human capacity. And for that man, it wasn't simply the black and white photo. It was his very human dignity that was on the line. We all treasure things. Some of those things can be material things. Some of those things can be things everyone treasures. Some of those things can be something maybe only we treasure. But we are created to treasure. In fact, if you want to know someone more intimately, part of knowing somebody intimately is beginning to know what they truly treasure. Now, let's be honest. A lot of times we're in denial of what we treasure. We confuse what we really treasure with what we want everyone else to think we treasure. But we're all designed to treasure something. Paul here in this passage helps us make a distinction between the treasure and the vessel. And it makes it a little more complex that the treasure is in the vessel. But he's helping us make a difference between the treasure and the vessel so that we will come to value that which is truly valuable. Now the treasure that Paul is referring to is this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, let's slow that down just a little bit, right? Kind of like a slow jam, right? Just slow it down a little bit and think about this. Listen to these words. God, the creator God, the one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, made light shine in our hearts, our being those who are Christians, those saints, made light to shine, commanded it shine in our hearts. The heart is the, in biblical terms, the seat of the human personhood. This creator God made something shine in the core of who, uh, of human personhood. That he, what did he make shine was the light. That means illumination, revelation, insight. He made light shine, not just any light, but the light of the knowledge, gnosko in Greek, this interactive relationship with the glory. Glory means the depths of the, the goodness and greatness of God in the face, in the personhood of Jesus, means in the embodied person of the man Jesus, in his character, in his teaching, and in his life. God made to shine in the core of who we are as Christians. He illuminated it with the interactive relationship with the depths of his greatness and goodness, made evidence to us, embodied to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that is a treasure. But why is it a treasure? Think about how many billions of people throughout the history of the world have been trying to figure out what the gods wanted from us. Think about the Mayans who often uh, sacrifice children to God. Think about all the things people have done. Not only that, think about all of the ways people have sought out to try to figure out how to be fully alive and how to be truly human from, from modern day Scientology to self-help to, to Buddhism and Hinduism to all of the others. Think about the billions of people seeking to ask this question. What is it that gods have wanted from us? And what Paul is trying to say is that the God has made the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shine in the face of Jesus Christ, meaning in the person Jesus, we know it's no longer a mystery of what God has wanted or intended humanity to be, for we can see it now in the person Jesus Christ. The church has been entrusted with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That is, in Jesus, God has revealed what it means for man to be fully alive as God has designed it. I mean, we, we, we know this. We quote verse like this, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin is an archery term, which means that you, you missed the mark. You aimed it at the bullseye, but you missed, right? But think about what that means. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It means then, yes, we've sinned, we've fallen short, but it means we were aimed at glory. That God made human beings aimed at glory and we, we fell short of this glory. And now, lost and pandering around, trying to figure out what does it mean to be human, God reveals what that means to us in the person Jesus Christ. We no longer has to be a mystery 
That is the treasure that Paul is talking about. Now, imagine for a moment, he compares this with the vessel. Everybody all right? Now, the vessel is, in Paul's passage, is his own body in the limitations and weaknesses of his body. But Paul's point is actually really hopeful. Paul's point is this, that the vessel, though it has all these limitations and weaknesses, the, the, the very limitations of the vessel actually gives the occasion for the triumph of the treasure. In other words, it is the richness of the treasure in the limitations and fragility of the vessel that makes sure that we know that this power comes from God and not from us. He rejoices in the limitations of the vessel because it only means the triumph of the treasure. Now, what I'd like to do briefly this morning is help us see a couple things about treasury and then really talk about what would it look like if the church treasured this above everything else? How might the church look if we really treasured that which what Paul says is a treasure? So bear with me. We're going to work through this a bit. Turn with me briefly to Matthew chapter 6, and you'll see something about what Jesus says about treasuring. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where there's neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, pause for a minute. I've heard sermons about laying up treasure, which really meant, you know, do good works. But I can tell you this. When he says lay up treasures in heaven, he's not exclusively talking about good works. To make good works the most important thing about treasures in heaven is moralism, not Christianity. Just to be frank. Listen, Jesus is being very practical. Why put your treasures in a place where there's rust and dust, where there's moths, where things can destroy, where thieves can steal? Why put what you value in a place where it is threatened. Instead, put your treasures in that place called heaven, that realm called heaven. The first thing Jesus is helping us understand is anything that we value that is temporal to this earth is never safe. Whatever you're gonna value that belongs to this realm called earth or temporary is never safe. And if we are honest with it, we see it. I've had two friends over the last two months, lose teenage children. Whatever we value on this life is really never safe. Anybody who has children know what I'm talking about. I remember the first time I looked at my son Judah and held him, it was like my heart was now beating and wandering outside of my chest, and I couldn't protect it. Jesus is saying, whatever you value that's of this realm will eventually, it's, it's never safe. So we put our treasures where he, in this realm called heaven. He's not talking about simply the afterlife. This realm uh, of God's domain, of God's dominion. This, this realm that C.S. Lewis said is right here with us, as thin as a veil. There's this realm of heaven in which we are to learn to treasure that which is of God's world and God's domain. But then he adds to this real basic principle. For where your treasure is, is where your heart is. In other words, if you want to know who you really are, look at what you treasure. If you want to know who you really are, look at what you treasure. Because at the end of the day, what you treasure determines the quality of your soul. What you treasure will determine the quality of your soul. I don't know if that's a good thing for us or a bad thing for us. You guys are kind of quiet and a little... You can, you can talk back if you want. That may, that may help me. If not, it may be a long morning, but hey. Jesus said those who endure to the end will be saved. He may omit this sermon. Just joking with you. What we treasure determines the quality of our souls, and that's why we must be careful about this treasuring capacity and what we do with it. Then Jesus goes on in Matthew 6 to say the eye is the lamp of the body. And so your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now just pause for a minute. Again, Jesus is being practical. Just remember, I, I think I've said this before here. You, you cannot believe Jesus is Lord if you don't also believe Jesus is smart. Like Jesus knows what he's talking about. And when he says the eye is the lamp of the body, think about the body and all of your capacities to run, to catch, to, to swing, to throw, to write. But if, think about how much of all those capacities depends upon seeing. Yeah, you may be fast, and yes, you may be able to catch. Can you see the ball? 
In other words, the body is kind of in subjection to some of these main senses, one of them being sight. And look, to be honest with you, Jesus is not the only one that knows this. He's not the only one that knows where you start to give the most amount of attention, you'll start actually treasuring. This is why Facebook, Instagram, Twitter spend billions of dollars to try to make sure you see certain ads at certain times. They know what's before your eyes. Well, eventually you will treasure. And Jesus knew this 2,000 years ago. And he's saying what we give our attention to ultimately grows in our souls. So watch over where we give our attention. And then in verse 24, he's not going to make it easy for us. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one or love the other. Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Mammon, prosperity, wealth. Because here's the deal. What you begin to treasure, you try to seek to secure. And in a way, when you try to seek to secure what you treasure, you wind up serving that which you treasure. And you cannot, he says, serve God and mammon. And that's why it's important. The Bible has given us practices. We talk about tithes and offerings. Let me just, let me just yeah, let's just um, go this way. Listen, I don't, it doesn't matter to me how you want to try to work through New Testament versus Old Testament understanding of tithes. This is what I do know. We need tithes, not so that we can somehow please God by, uh, vicariously through the law. We need tithes so that we can teach money a lesson. You do not own me. You were a gift from God. So when we practice tithing, for example, when we give... When we give 10% of the first fruits, what we're saying in the tithe is that I recognize my provision was a gift from God, not by my own doing. Learning to give money away is the way you teach money a lesson. I don't serve you, you serve me. And Jesus would continue. He goes on through verses 25 all the way to verse 34. He's not going to make it very easy on us, talking about not being anxious about tomorrow. Then he tells us to consider the birds. And I just want to just point this out briefly in passing. He brings up the birds for a very specific point. Birds work. Birds create. They, they procreate. They build nests. Birds work. Jesus' sole point about birds is they don't build barns. They don't hoard their resources to themselves, but they live in the good care of God. And he says, listen, if you want to help with your anxiety, consider the birds. In other words, there is a connection between the amount of anxiety you will have in your soul versus your ability to see God's sovereign care of creation. Can you see that birds eat because God is good? And then he asks a strange question. How much more valuable are you than they? Or another way of saying this, how many birds are you worth? Are you not more valuable to God? In other words, part of learning how to treasure God and not be anxious is to learn and see how much God has treasured us. And then he goes on to talk about other things we might treasure, our appearances. Somebody's short, he says, what does worrying about your height have to do? Can you add one, one uh, cubic to your stature just by worrying? I mean, he's going right with the scalpel, right at money, provision, protection, our appearances. He's going right at it. And then he, he kind of concludes this section with this. Look, all of the Gentiles of the world seek after such things, and they have the anxiety and the fear that come with it. But not so with you, for your father, your father knows what you need. All right, so now what do I do, Jesus? Okay. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his inner goodness. And his job, God's response, will be to add all these things into you. Seek first God's kingdom, his, his domain. Seek first what God is doing around you and join him in what he's doing. And then seek to put on his inner goodness and God will make sure the rest gets sorted out. Is that not phenomenal to anybody? Do you believe that enough to teach your children? That's challenging to me. All right, son, you know, I want you to work and be a contributor to society, learn to save, learn to invest, but, you know, don't build barns, trust Jesus too. No, we have to decide, don't we? Some things about Jesus. He cuts right to the heart of it. 
And then it's as if he's going to put a knife in it. He says, but look, don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough trouble of its own. Anybody else? Nobody puts that first on the refrigerator. Have you noticed that? I don't know about you. When somebody quotes that to me, don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough trouble of its own. I get paranoid. Like, what do you know about tomorrow? I don't know. Could you just tell me what's going to happen? Listen, in other words, I, I don't mean to be too pessimistic, but look, Jesus is being real. Life is full of things we can't control that are painful and suffering happens, chaos ensues, things happen, and you can't control those things. And worrying about them actually doesn't do you any good. So focus on you trusting me, Jesus would say. Focus, you, focus on trusting me, trusting the Father, day-to-day provision. And he'll be with you in this moment, in this pain, in this trouble, today, providing for you, and he'll be with you tomorrow in the next moment. He'll be with you, providing for you, being with you in the middle of the pain, and he'll be there the next day and the next day. In other words, you cannot have a lifetime of trusting God. You can only have a moment and then another moment and then another moment and then another moment, and eventually you may put together a lifetime of trusting God, but you don't start out choosing a lifetime of trusting God. I don't know about you, but that's really helpful to me because you look around and you see the chaos and the suffering of the world and you, and you want to ask questions and it, it, and it almost calls you to pull things close to your chest and, and cling to it. And then there's this God saying, I know this is all chaos. I know that there is evil and suffering in the world. But one of the ways, or the way, that our life transcends that suffering and finds meaning is to live and join God in what he's doing in his kingdom to seek first his inner goodness. So that's a little bit of what Jesus has to say about the subject. Now, what I want to do is really turn my attention to focusing more on the church. This idea of vessel and treasure distinction also works as we think about the church. Now, what I mean by vessel when it comes to churches is methods approaches, ways we do church. And what I have found in, 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 in conversation with many others is most of the time, especially when leaders want to talk about the church, if you listen carefully, most of the conversation gets caught up in methodology. Do we do it in a house or do we do it in a cathedral? What kind of style of worship do we have? Do we do it this way or do we do it that way? And what I want to point out is that is all vessel conversation, not treasure conversation. What would it look like to talk about the church only in terms of what it is to treasure? And that's why I want to be clear. The New Testament gives very little, if any at all, attention to such things like architecture, pulpits, lengths of sermons, even sermons themselves, rules for Sunday school, how to do community groups, style of worship, lighting, order of worship, Right? How, what time we should have our gatherings? How do you do an online service? I mean, wouldn't that be odd if Paul wrote, hey, be sure to secure the .tv, not the .org in your website, bro. There's no denominational camps, no pastors' conferences, there's no board meeting minutes in the New Testament. And those that strive to be a New Testament church must not try to replicate the details, we must try to live by the principles and absolutes of the New Testament. And one, we, must be, we must be determined, let me put it that way, not to become distracted or to be absorbed in details concerning the vessel at the cost of the treasure. We must not make the mistake of, of thinking uh, or, or mistaking these vessel things for the treasure of the real presence of Christ. We must not think that if we know how to do church successfully, that somehow we really know about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Those aren't the same things. What would it look like to treasure that? Now listen, let me say a couple things. What I'm not saying is that vessels are of no importance, though some of them are a close call. I am not saying they're of no importance. Well, this is what I am saying, two things. First of all, the vessel conversation, methods about how we do church, they are not the starting point or the essentials, nor are they the fundamental matters, and that's why the New Testament gives little attention to them. Number two, what I'm saying if we make vessel issues out to be essential or even very important, 
even if we do so practically by spending the most amount of time talking about these things, then you can be sure that the local church will make little progress towards embodying the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We will become, uh, uh, we will have little progress towards Christ-likeness, little progress towards discipleship, if you want to use that language. In other words, let me put it very frankly, matters concerning methods and vessels of the church do not bring people to spiritual growth. That's a proven fact. You can just look and see. So how do we avoid these traps of vessels? Well, first, let's be clear about this. Vessels are necessary. They're necessary for the treasure. And we have to just acknowledge that Jesus had a vessel. It was a Jewish one. And that vessel became a problem for the New Testament church. They had to work through and find out ways. The book of Acts and the New Testament letters are filled with ways that they found to transcend that Jewish vessel trap. And welcome what God was doing with the Gentiles. I mean, Acts 15, is a, it, the council at Jerusalem meets because they've been baptized in Gentiles. And the Jews are trying to figure out what to do. We couldn't go into a Jew's house. We couldn't, a Jew couldn't go into a Gentile's house uh, a few weeks ago. They are ceremonially unclean. Now you're baptizing Gentiles into the family? Peter, come. We need to have a meeting. And Peter's explanation is brilliant. Peter says, guys, it wasn't me. I'm like preaching, and the Holy Spirit falls on them the way he did us. Now the fundamental question of Acts 15 is this. Will the kingdom of God determine what the church does? Or will the church get to determine what the kingdom of God does? Which one's the treasure? Which one's the vessel? And so John, in his brilliant language, says, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Which is a way of saying, the kingdom is the treasure, we're the vessel. We go where it goes. We can avoid these vessel traps by taking seriously the principles and absolutes of the New Testament with the natural outcome being learning how to walk in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And look, we don't even have to get it right for God to bless it. Now look, being right is better than being wrong as long as we don't put confidence in our rightness. But let me tell you this, the people who think we have to get it right in order for God to bless it usually have a very narrow experience of life and probably really don't understand all that God's really done for them. What we have to do is just begin, as we'll look at in a moment. So God has a plan for doing this, and I just want to unfold briefly a little bit of God's plan. What would the church look like if we treasured this treasure without trying to appeal to models and vessels? Just what is the church like if, if it just treasured this? What, what can we pull in the absolutes and principles of the New Testament? So bear with me um, as I try to work through this. To treasure the presence of God in our midst is to arrange our lives around what is most important to God. This is to bring those in our midst to believe, to enjoy, and thus glorify God through the person and work of Christ. Look, I am convinced what Paul is trying to help us understand is that when we learn to treasure God, when we learn to treasure the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, when we learn to treasure that, God is actually more glorified. When we learn to delight in it, when we learn to enjoy it, God is even more glorified. That when we learn to treasure God, we get the joy and God gets the glory. Learning to treasure what God treasures is fundamentally what discipleship is all about. And I want to look at a plan that Jesus lays out on how to do that. A plan you know very well, but I want to maybe try to make it a little more practical today. Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, but I have all authority on heaven and earth. Then he makes this comment. Go. Three-stage plan. Are you ready? Go. Make disciples. That's number one. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey all that I commanded you. And know that I'm with you always to the end of the age. Three-step plan. Make disciples. Baptize them in the Trinitarian presence. And teach them to do all that I've commanded you. I just want to look at this practically as we conclude. That, that, okay, I'm starting my conclusion, which just means the plane's starting to come down. We're not close. I didn't want to give you any false hope here. Stage one, making disciples. The New Testament does not recognize 
a category of Christians who are not apprentices or disciples to Jesus Christ and kingdom living. The church does not recognize, and the New Testament does not recognize a category of Christians who have decided they want to be Christians, they just don't want to be his disciple. Now it does recognize baby Christians, those who are still preoccupied and predominantly preoccupied and dependent upon their human, natural human abilities. But he does not, he calls us flesh, if you would. So to be a disciple or apprentice of Jesus is to be one who's learning to trust Jesus with their whole life as we understand it. To put it as simply as I can put it, to be a disciple or apprentice of Jesus is one who is with Jesus, learning how to live their own life, your own existence, as he would if he were you. You're with Jesus, learning how to live your life, your very existence, as he would if he were you. Jesus had his own life. He had certain things he had to do. He didn't have your life. But you have your life, and we have to figure out how to be with him and learn from him how to live the very life I have as he would if he were me. This is the fundamental basis of any apprenticeship. If you wanted to, be, if you wanted to learn mathematics, you had some vision on why being a... Mathematics would be a good idea. You can go, our own Mark Lira, who just went backstage, is a professor of mathematics. You can go to him and say, I want to learn, to, I want to be your apprentice in mathematics. And you would be with Mark Lira, learning how to do mathematics with Mark Lira as he would if he were you. It's that way in any apprenticeship. None of it's different when it comes to Jesus, except it's not mathematics. It's life. We are learning how to live life as Jesus, my life, as Jesus would if he were me. So broadly stated, this would have two basic aspects. One would be the, we may call, I don't like the word religious, it may be the religious aspect or the spiritual aspect, and that is we would actually learn by reading the Gospels, taking what Jesus has taught us to do and commanded us, and we'd be learning how to do that, very practically. Now that, that's important, when I say we learn how to do that. I'm gonna talk more about that in a moment, I shouldn't get ahead of myself. But that's what I'm talking about. We would be learning how, for example, to trust God, uh, trust Jesus Christ with our life and not be anxious about life. We might be learning how to bless those who curse us. We may be learning how not to serve mammon and be prior, prior, uh, pri preoccupied with gathering wealth for ourselves. But I wanna just point out, you learn to do these things not when you've been taught you ought to do them. You haven't learned these things when you've been taught you should do them. You learn how to do them when you know how to do them on an appropriate basis in all the activities of your life. It's like learning to ride a bike. You don't learn how to ride a bike when you think I should ride a bike. You don't haven't learned how to ride a bike when you say I ought to ride a bike. You haven't learned how to ride a bike when you say I know people ride bikes. You haven't learned how to ride a bike when you say I know Bob can ride a bike. I see Bob riding a bike. Looky there, that's riding a bike. You haven't learned it. You learn to ride a bike when you get on the bike and you ride it. You don't learn the command. You don't learn, make disciples and learn from Jesus when you just know what you ought to do. I ought to bless those who curse me. You learn from Jesus when you're doing that. This would mean we would have to learn how to do it at home and work to practice what Jesus taught. We would come to expect it from our community that people are learning here how to do the things Jesus did because he shined a light in their hearts of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, let's be honest. If God really has shown us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, if Jesus really is God's idea of what it means to be fully alive as a human being, who else are you apprentice of then? Who better to follow? Who better to learn from on how to live your life to its fullest? The second aspect then would be the more secular or what we may call non-churchy aspects. That is how to run a business or how to parent or how to uh, engage in participate in government or engage in cultural life in our society. Look, Jesus would certainly do it if he were you, so we have to figure out how to do it. And we can't just do, learn this from simply keeping the commands that Jesus taught because the commands that Jesus gave us don't involve every circumstance we're gonna find in life. This is where we have to learn how to rely upon the presence of the Holy Spirit and learn how to live with the Holy Spirit, learning how to do what Jesus would do if he were us. And that requires all of life. Now, practically, this may sound overwhelming. When we hear it, we go, what? How do we even do that? But I just want to tell you all that's necessary is that we begin. That's it. 
that we come to simply believe, or even if you don't believe, then seek out and find whether or not it's true. Is Jesus actually the one in the Lord in charge of the cosmos and know what he's talking about or not? But if we come to see that he is, then what we want to do is be with him. And then we learn how to do these things. And the reason why we learn how to do these things is because we don't know how to do these things. So give yourself a break. There's going to be ignorance and there's going to be mistakes and we're going to stumble and we're going to fall. That's part of learning and God knows it. Interesting passage in John 14. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if you do, I will send a helper. It's like, it's like he's saying, look, I, the disciples said, Jesus, we love you. We're going to keep your commandments. And he's like, all right, your boys are going to need some help. I'm going to send this helper to you called the Holy Spirit. He knows. That's why it's called learning. All we need to do is start. We must eagerly desire to not be left out of what Jesus is and what he's doing around us. Now look, when we come to him as Lord, we will in one move receive forgiveness of our sins and we will then take his yoke upon us and learn from him, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But I just want to say something here that most Christians kind of skip over. I don't know if you know this, but it actually takes a learning curve to learn to live forgiven. We have to learn how to live forgiven. And part of learning how to be forgiven is to have other disciples around you who are reminding you of the gospel, of the good news of what Jesus has done for you, and who are treating you as if you really are forgiven. But listen, anybody who finally says they want to follow Jesus, they want to trust him with their whole life, guess what's going to happen? Anybody, you soon find all of these harmful and dark things in your own soul. Anybody? It's like moving closer to the mirror. I thought I looked good. The closer I get, I realize there's tons of problems. So when we start, there'll be all kinds of harmful things that come up. False thoughts and feelings, self-will, bodily inclinations to evil, ungodly social relationships and patterns, wounds of the soul, addictions and other areas of brokenness. But you can be sure, all of these, our Savior and our teacher will meet us there and will heal us as we are on the journey with him. We don't have to figure that all out. In particularly, as we learn to engage in the multifaceted ministry of the Holy Spirit. God will take care of these things as we run into them. However, all I want to say here about making disciples is this, that there, this will never work if we have a flawed version of faith. Because if we have a flawed version of faith that says we can be Christian without ever really wanting to be Christ's disciple, then all of this is unnatural and unnecessary anyway. We have to just completely dismantle this notion that the Bible somehow affirms a Christian who has no intent on being Christ-like. It doesn't. We have to wrestle through that. And there will be grace. And part, listen, part of the problem of this is to be, to be frank. We honestly think, I don't really need God's grace in order to bring radical transformation in my inner life so that I can be as he made me. I just need a little bit of God's help. I remember when I first got saved, I thought God got a deal. People like, he saved you, redeemed you, and he bought you. And I'm like, yeah, he did. Have you seen me? And that's precisely part of the problem. We don't think we need the radical transformation that we need. We just need a little bit of help because we think we're good people. But listen, if we're going to be Christ's disciple, it cannot be negotiated on those basis. Rather, in, in Jesus' words in Luke 14, we must learn that to follow Jesus means we must give up our life to him. Our whole life. Jesus says in Luke 14, if you want to follow me, then take up your cross and follow me. Now listen, he says, if you don't take up your cross, you can't be my disciple. Now listen, don't read that like Jesus saying, if you are unwilling to take up your cross, I'm going home, nan, nan, boo, boo. It's not that Jesus is mean. It's like somebody saying this, if you cannot do arithmetic, then thou cannot do algebra. It's not that we won't let you. It's that arithmetic is necessary for algebra. If you cannot or refuse to take up your cross, you can't be Jesus' disciple, not because he's mean, but because where he's going requires that we take up a cross. It, it requires that we give up our whole life if we're actually going to find it. This giving up then 
will bring about change as we learn to do it. But part of our problem is we don't think we need to give up our life because we just need a little help to live a, a little more successful life. But our, our idea of a sex, successful life is part of the problem as well. Now the first stage of Jesus' plan, three-stage plan, which is making disciples, has to do with cultivating a vision. I just want to end this part with a couple things. Practically, this is what it means. And I just want to be frank with you. Those in leadership of the church, elders, pastors, overseers, staff, must recognize that the primary candidates for discipleship are the people who are already here in the church. And the first step in leading people who are here to become disciples of Jesus is for the leaders to give their focused attention to being disciples themselves. A simple goal for leaders of a particular group would be to just to bring attention and understanding to what it clearly means to be Jesus' disciple and to hold that out in front of the congregation with practice and with teaching and with examples of what it might look like. And it may be hard to do that, but we, we know we're getting some progress when people, for example, to be Jesus' disciple may be obvious when somebody asks who you are and you're able to say, I'm a child of God who's learning from Jesus how to live uh, fully alive in God's kingdom. When it begins to mark who we are. Now look, of course, I don't think the whole, lo- the whole group in the, in the congregation needs to be moved to this, this way, but this goal should be before us and we should constantly be in motion to it. Again, we don't need to be picky over the details of how this is done. Is it done from the platform? Is it done in C group? All that is method. All that is vessel. What, what we need to be clear is that it needs to be done. I just want to warn us of this. When you start hearing a too detailed plan about how to make Uh, about how to be and make disciples, you can almost guarantee that it's taking too much into human hands. It's God who makes disciples. And we need to keep that. Now, I just want to say this because where I've come from, but when I talk about discipleship in other places, there seems to be this undertone, and I want to caution us. I am not talking about purifying the church. I hear people talk about, let's get rid of tares. That's the problem. Jesus in Matthew 13, there's wheat and there's tares, right? There's tares in the church. <laughs> I always sound like a hillbilly when I say tares. Tares. There's tares in the church. Look. <laughs> tares, whether real or apparent, should be loved and served and called to be disciples of Jesus. Jesus has made it clear that God has decided a schedule in which he will purify his church. That's not our job. Our job is to hold out hope and the confidence that God can do the impossible and he can take tares and transform them into wheat. What we must do though, yeah, amen. Well, let me, let me just sum up uh, stage two and three. We had, uh, so quick, I spent too much time there, but stage two would be baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That doesn't mean say three names before you dunk people in water. If you think that's what it means, you don't understand biblically the use of the word name. It means submerge them in the reality of. We are to immerse those who have a vision of being Christ's disciple, even if their vision is incomplete and even if they're stumbling along in their journey. Our job is to help them be submerged in the reality of the Trinitarian God, the love and the faithfulness of the Father, the accomplishment and victory of the Son, and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The most important thing about the church will be the presence of God among us. It is the only true discerning criteria of a true ecclesia, that God is in their midst. And this God is a teaching and healing God. Why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when a visitor visits the New Testament church, they would come to cry out, surely God is among you. Because the mark of who we are would be the presence of God. Practically, then, if we were going to try to really arrange our lives around the Trinitarian presence, you know what one of the things we would do practically? We would eliminate performance from our gatherings. Performance is when I try to appear to be something to you than just simply be what I am. And performance has no place in the presence of a Trinitarian God. Because, see, what we are learning to do is we're learning to discern God's presence, and so we must be careful not to perform, but to let God be God. This is why those who minister and preach and lead, we don't need tricks or techniques. We just need to speak the words of Christ from from the character of Christ within the manifest presence of God and let God sort that out. But listen, what we're doing is we're learning. What we do when we gather together in this time 
what we call worship is really orienting our souls to the presence of God. And that is not just for here. That's for when we leave, that we might live oriented to the presence of God. That we might be able to see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the ordinary events of our life. And this is why it's important that we eliminate performance. Because if we're not careful, if discerning God becomes too closely associated with other feelings like, like creativity or like inspiration or even some energizing emotion, then we might miss out on discerning God in the ordinary events of life. Anybody who's walked with God for any length of time will tell you most of the time when God shows up in an ordinary life, it is unordinary and uneventful. And if we associate the presence of God too closely with certain emotions, we're in trouble. The last thing he says is teach them to do all that I commanded you. What this means is that we, the church, would actually have and intend on having some means by which the person's inner life would be transformed towards Christ-likeness. And that would be intentional. And that would be measurable. That would have expectations that are realistic. It would have realistic instruction. And they would have ways of managing progress. If we really believe that we are to teach people to do the things that Jesus commanded to do, then we would actually have a way of doing that without putting too much stock in how much vessel or method we did it. We would just do it and be experimental but intentional, willing to shift if we needed to, but a way that we have the expectations that people would actually do the things that Jesus did. I mean, I'll give you an interesting practice. I need to conclude. Take a moment. Go back through the scriptures and write down everything Jesus commanded you to do and then ask the question, what have you learned to do? You may be surprised. You may have learned to do some of them. But that would then be taking it seriously, at least. Remember, we learn to do, which means we have to practice which means we fail and we won't get it right. This process will be pervaded with grace and the power of God, but we would be teaching people how to do these things. I want to just conclude with this. If we are going to teach people to do the things that Jesus commanded us to, this is what I want to just make explicitly known. You cannot make people choose to believe anything. Belief is not a function of your will. Neither is feeling. Just show it to you. Next time you're in an argument with somebody, with a loved one, maybe a spouse, look at them and say, hey, I know you're angry. I need you to choose another feeling. See how that goes. Listen, here's the problem. In practical ministry, when we assume you can choose to believe, then what begins to happen is instead of actually dealing with your mind and helping you come to see the truth, we try to go through your will by moving it through your emotions. And we try to move you emotionally to get you to will something differently. And that's one of the reasons why it will never last. We don't simply choose. The will is changed. The center of who we are is changed by coming to see the truth. And then we adjust to it. That is the order of real spiritual transformation. And that's why if we're going to teach people to do the things Jesus commanded, we have to take seriously the ideas, the images, the information, and the thinking processes that occupy their mind. And we must appeal to them without trying to manipulate their will. But just speak the truth and invite people to come and see. Well, look. If we were to take seriously these things, then all of what we would call church matters begin to matter very little as long as we are doing these things. And just to be frank, if we're not doing these things, what does it really matter? If all is not organized around helping people believe, receive, and be transformed into the life that is marked by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God on the face of Christ Jesus, what difference does all of this make anyway? The wonderful thing is this. There's no special talents needed. There's no personal skills needed, no education programs. We don't need more money. We don't need more possessions. We don't need bigger buildings. We don't need any of this. None of this is required to bring it to pass. Why? Because Paul reminds us, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power may come from God and not from us. We don't need any of this. All we need is for people who will take seriously, ordinary people, who have decided to become apprentices of Jesus, who are gathered in his name around the Trinitarian presence, who are seeking to put on his character by learning to do the things that he did, 
and genuine transformation. That's all that required. And that can be done in houses. It can be done in cathedrals. It can be done in the middle of pandemics. It can be done when there's no pandemics. It can be done with whoever's president. It can be done with no how much whether the church is persecuted or it's not persecuted. If this is done, all of those things matter little. But listen to me. If the church is not the one who does these things, then none of those things matter even less. No one else has this responsibility but us, for we have been entrusted with this treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. I want to end with just a reading of Matthew 13, just two little verses, and I'm done. Matthew 13, verses 44 and 45, Jesus tells a parable that goes together. pastor read it last week, in fact. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered, and with joy goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. The kingdom is this treasure. When a man found it, he sold everything he had. What must you see about the kingdom of God for you to be willing to give everything you have for it? But notice the next verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a fine pearl, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. You might think it's redundant. It's the same parable back to back, but notice the difference. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is the treasure. Everybody say treasure. But notice verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is the merchant, not the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is the merchant who's looking for a pearl of great price, and when he finds it, gives up all that he has for it. Now listen to me, are you ready? What Jesus is asking us to do in treasuring him, he's not asking to do it us to do it without him doing it first. He's asking us to treasure him the way he has treasured us. God saw the pearl of great price, which was this redeemed humanity called church, brought out of the world that will be from every time, Trump, nation, and people, and will be for his glory and his prize and his possession forever. And he bankrupt heaven to buy it. And now he says, come, value me the way I valued you. Would you stand with me? Jesus, we need help. A lot of it. I just pray now as we turn our affection to you, as we worship, Holy Spirit, will you come? Would you clarify our vision of Jesus? Will you draw us in to see the beauty of the light, of the knowledge, of the glory of God in the person Jesus Christ? Come, Holy Spirit.